Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, your adoption show. I'm April Fallon. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I'm your host, April Fallon, and we are in season seven. We are so excited about all of these stories. If you're new to Adoption Now, we tell stories from the perspective of the adoptee, birth parent, and adoptive parent. My husband, Noah, and I have four children through adoption, and we started the show as a radio program in Denver. It has become the international podcast you hear today. We're so honored that so many people worldwide trust us to share their journey in adoption. We have honestly learned so much. I always say it. You guys have heard it. But if it hasn't changed your life, it's okay. It's changed ours and made us better parents. I would love to talk to you today about the new website. I know we've been talking about it forever. It feels like years. But it's up. It's launched. You got to check it out, adoptionnowpodcast.com. We have new merchandise. You have to check out that mug. I love that mug so much. And the onesie, the baby onesie is really cute. In fact, we ordered some and they're just so, so cute. So check it out. Let me know what you think. And hopefully it's helpful to the community. I wanted to update you on our family. I am homeschooling AJ and Malia. Oh my gosh, it's so hard sixth and kindergarten. And I just want to say that if you homeschool, I commend you. You are amazing. It is the hardest thing for me that I've ever done. I mean, my kids are loving it. Don't get me wrong. But staying home and teaching math is like so challenging for me. I didn't even like it when I was in school. And now I have to be home and teaching math again. But my kids are doing really well. And ultimately, Sometimes you have to make that choice, especially when you're talking about adoption. If you feel like your kids are not thriving, sometimes you have to make a really hard choice to rearrange your schedule, your work schedule, and bring them home. And honestly, I have seen a huge difference in both of them, and they're so much happier. My other two are doing great in school. They're fine. But for this season, this is what they needed. And although I, d- I prayed, I was like, please, God, no, don't let this be. I am really happy to have them home, and I love their little personalities, and I love seeing how they're learning. In fact, with Malia, and and if you listen, you know that we have struggled with her difficulties in school, and we didn't know if it was a learning difficulty. You know what? Malia is just Malia. She's very, very smart, but if she doesn't feel that you love her or she's getting enough attention, she will not do the work. And so I've learned, okay, Malia, I'm going to give you attention, but you need to do this. And so it's just been good to know how she learns. And now when she goes back into school, I feel like I have a better understanding of my child. And I know so many of you do that for that reason. And I just, I think you're amazing. I think you're amazing that you chose to stay home and to to teach your children. Well, I have kind of some bad news. My dad did pass away. I know our listeners, you kind of know that he was getting sick. And you know our story that I relate to adoptees so much because I found my biological father in college. Well, he found me. And so we were reconnected. And it's a whole culture that was so new to me. I mean, he's Native American. He's in a tribe. He makes dream catchers. He does fry bread. He makes fry bread. I mean, he does all the, the things. And so Huge culture shock for me as an adult and trying to start that relationship. At first, it was really easy. I was super excited. He was super excited. And I saw a lot of myself in the DNA, so to speak. You see like who you are sometimes or where you where you came from. I think it's really, really important to find your biological family. And that experience really did change me. But the last 20 years, it's It's been an interesting ride. He wasn't a big fan of adoption. I think it's just culturally the family didn't really understand why I chose adoption. And I think they also didn't understand why I chose adoption outside of my race. And that journey has, for us, kind of took us away from the closeness with my dad. And just all that being said, even though you're not as close to a parent when they pass away, it's really hard. And it's been a very, very challenging season. Noah and I did get to go back to Wisconsin and say goodbye to him. So very thankful for that. But 
it is a time where we feel exhausted and and grieving. So if you think about us, pray for us. We would love that. So much going on, but I'm excited about today's show because, you know, I'm always excited. And this guest is doing work that I feel very passionate about. I think this topic is one of the most important topics right now in the adoption community. I think all adoptive parents need to talk about it and be familiar with it. Today we have a neonatal nurse practitioner here who works to improve the outcomes for babies painfully withdrawing from opiates. After being exposed in the womb, they really struggle and she has created a place to improve support for number one, birth moms in recovery, and also for babies who are detoxing from these drugs that they're trying to get out of their system. She's been a nurse for 30 years and is recognized nationally as an expert in these areas. In November 2020, Tara took her passion and opened a facility called Hushabai Nursery. Tara Sundam, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a lot to say. I kind of butchered your... (laughs) Your, your uh, intro, but you're great. <laughs> it's just such a, a big topic. Yeah, it's heavy, right? We usually have like yay topics, and this is like oh my dad died, and now here we're talking about this like heavy topic with uh, drug exposure. Tell us your journey. How did you even get involved in yeah. in yeah. helping babies? So, like you said, I'm a neonatal nurse practitioner. I'm only taking very ter- taking care of babies for the last thirty years. That's it. And in about two thousand. 15, we started seeing all these babies coming into our NICUs withdrawing. And it was like, what in the world is going on? Mm-hmm. And I actually needed to be closer to my kids. I needed to not work 45 minutes away. And so I started working in just a tiny little NICU close to me. And it was six beds. And at any given time, we had five to six babies that were withdrawing. And we were like, what in the world's going on here in my little community? Where are these families coming from? And that NICU is very much like the other NICUs. Bright lights, beeping monitors, very little private space. And what I found was I became really frustrated with the care. Mm-hmm. Meaning you would have babies do really well with certain nurses that were on, certain doctors, certain nurse practitioners that were on. And a baby, like, for instance, would do great when I was on, 7 to 7. And 8.30 p.m. comes on, and I see every day the baby's given more and more morphine to get through that withdrawal. That's what we give them. Mm -hmm. I was like, what in the world is going on? Right after change of shift, baby had cried. Babies to start sweating when they're crying and have beads of sweat on their forehead. They've been crying for a while. Mm -hmm. And this was a norm. And it was like, what is going on? And then you would have certain days that babies would do great. And you were able to wean them. You were able to get them off the morphine. But again, the next day, someone else would come on. It just wasn't their love. It wasn't their passion. Mm -hmm. They did not want the lights dimmed. They didn't want um, the families involved, which is awful to say, but it is. Just seemed like we needed to do something different. We heard about Lily's Place in West Virginia, where they took the babies out of their natal, natal intensive care unit out of necessity. This this um, area was impacted by the opiate crisis. Uh, when we went to go walk, to look at Lily's Place, I believe they had six babies in the unit, and then in the hospital, I believe it was thirty-two beds, and they had twenty-eight babies withdrawing in that 32 beds. Oh my gosh. I was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this. And we saw them on the Today Show. They were being interviewed and we we're like, oh my gosh, we're going to go do that. Mm-hmm. So we went and visited and we're like, yes, we absolutely going to do that. Okay. Well, it's not that easy and not that simple. How do you get funding? How do you get a building? How do you do licensure? What do you do? And I really think that I needed to learn a lot during the path. And so initially our care was save the baby. I don't really care about families, which is awful to say, but I am a baby person. That's all I took care of. Um, Then I learned that 
boy, really the best medicine is that primary caregiver. So if that primary caregiver is biological mom and dad, if that's um, a grandma and grandpa, if that's an adoptive family, we need to invite them into the neonatal intensive care unit or wherever we're at and teach them how to care for these little ones. And that care model ended up shifting to not just the baby, but to the whole family. Mm -hmm. So whatever that family looks like, even if it's adoptive and birth um, parents, that it sometimes is that. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, who's caring for the baby now? What are we doing? And so in 2020, we finally got funding. We knew we needed one big, big donor. The Bob and Renee Parsons Foundation gave us our first huge amount of money and helped us remodel where we're at right now. We have a 12-bed facility in Phoenix, all private rooms, quiet light or quiet um, environment, dim lights. But most importantly, we have one-to-one caregivers. So if there's 12 babies, we have 12 bodies on top of whoever that family system is. Um, But if a pacifier falls out, someone's there immediately to put the pacifier back in. Mm -hmm. When a baby squeaks, someone's there very rarely, and I think when you toured, uh, you probably noted, you don't hear many babies cry. And if you do, you look in the room and there's two people helping that baby. If they're changing a diaper, someone's holding them past fire and then someone's changing the diaper. In the neonatal intensive care unit, the only babies that get that amount of attention are the babies that are the size of a dollar bill. I mean, they're right, the, you right, know, the, the sick, sick ones mm-hmm. that are going to pass away if you don't get to them right away. What we found is when babies come in, they are a completely different baby 30 minutes after being in the, mm. in, at Hushabai. Um, I think, number one, we have caregivers that choose to work with this type of baby and this type of population. Um, families that are struggling with opiates can be really hard. And we don't understand opiate use disorder in the community. I didn't understand it. I thought, just stop. Why are you not stopping? If you were a good mom, if you loved your baby, you would stop. Not understanding that it's a brain disease, that's chronic illness. For some of us, when we take an opiate, our brain changes. And it's not that simple. You get very, very sick. Um, meaning one mom explained to me withdrawals being the worst flu and migraine times 100. And when I heard that, I went, the worst flu. And if you knew that you could take something immediately and that flu would go away, I, who wouldn't do that? I, and, and it honestly is that way. When we see babies withdraw, very much same symptoms. When that mom dumbed that down for me, I was like, yeah, vomiting, sweating, diarrhea, fevers, chills, all of that we see in babies. And who doesn't want to make that better for a baby and their family, I, when you're, you know, seeing your baby sick, even my kids that are 20 now, when they're sick, I'm like, come home and let me take care of you. Because it just breaks your heart and you would do anything to make it better. Ooh, and that's, that's what Hashimai does. That's a really good point. And I think that that's kind of a shift for adoptive families is if you find out that your birth mom is doing drugs, you are essentially adopting a sick baby. And I think that no one wants to say that. No one wants to believe that. You don't even want to tell people if you're in the midst of it. I know because we went through it. And here we were in the midst of birth family who's doing drugs and baby's going to be exposed. And the only thing I know is that baby's going to shake. And can I hold a shaking baby? I just remember thinking, I don't know if I can hold a shaking baby. (laughs) And it was like so much more than just a shaking baby. And babies don't even always shake either. Withdrawal symptoms can come out in so many different ways. And I did not know how to care for the baby. But what I did know is in the NICU, you're absolutely correct. Whatever nurse was on that night affected Lily so much. And there was one nurse that I wouldn't even leave when she was there because she would make Lily so upset and then she would score her so high that we were never getting out of the hospital. We were going to be there forever because the scores were like, she's still detoxing. She's more morphine, more morphine. And then we had this male nurse that would come in and he was wonderful. And her scores would be a two, not a 10. 
And how come just within 24 hours, now we're back down to a two? And it was just all subject to the care that she was getting. And so here I was trying to make it work. And I didn't have you or anyone else telling me, this is a sick baby. This baby, it's like she has the flu. It's, I don't know what it's like to detox. So I can't really understand that. But when you really understand what the mom is going through and you get people who are talking to you about this, because this is a, an epidemic, right? This yeah. is like huge. Absolutely. And we're seeing more people that are in the midst, in the adoption world, in the midst of this more and more. And last guest we had, who knows you, who worked with you, Michaela, her baby was detoxing from fentanyl. And I was asking her all these questions. She didn't even know because fentanyl is so new. I mean, she didn't know what to expect from the withdrawal with her baby. And so we're seeing that we need education on this and not just education, but how do I take care of my baby once I bring the baby home for six months? There's crying episodes that you cannot stop. And you do things where you teach the family, this is the bath. This I remember walking with Lily in the sunlight and it was just a nice warm day and she was screaming her face off. And I'm like, why is she screaming? I took her downstairs to the dark basement. that was like cold, stopped. Right, because the sun yeah. was aggravating her, and these are all things that you just don't know as right. as a mom who's just and not who educated, know. right? Yeah. And so you're helping people. I I just think the connection is really great too, because not only did I have Michaela come on, my husband joined a baseball team and met a guy, and he said, "Oh, we're adopting a baby, but right now the baby's in Hushabai." And he's like, well, tell me about it. So Noah's hearing about you from this guy. And I'm hearing about you from, you know, an adoptive mom. And he came, comes home and he's like, I got to tell you about this. I'm like, oh, I heard about it too. And I would love to see these homes in every state. I would love a place where families can go that they just have the support and the people know what they're doing. The nurses really do care. And then, you know, you can help them because I'm sure you have people call you afterwards and say, Baby oh. won't calm down, or what do I do? Uh, absolutely. What this weekend <laughs> happened. <laughs> Developmental yeah. plans you make for them. Right. Let's talk about right. that. So there is not much as far as literature telling you what to expect. Any baby in the neonatal intensive care unit, if they're born at 23 weeks or if they're substance exposed, we know they're at higher risk for developmental delays and deficits. And so... Loving your baby, as we all do, and just waiting, making sure they're getting the assessments that they need, meaning that, yes, your pediatrician's great, but your pediatrician has 15 minutes to see you. And so seeing a developmental specialist, making sure that they're meeting the milestones that they are supposed to be. I know when you're caring for your baby, you see them every day. And so you don't notice like the little things. Sometimes I'll, I'll see moms with their babies and their little one comes in and their eye is crossed. And they don't even notice. And I'm like, are we seeing somebody for that? And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I, her eye is just kind of waving toward the center. They're like, oh, I didn't really notice that. And mm -hmm. so us doing a referral and going, okay, let's go and get that, you know, fixed. That's an easy, for the most part, fix. You patch the eye. Yes, they don't like it. It ends up going the way it's supposed to go. And you fix that. But when you're seeing your child every single day, sometimes those little things, those subtleties, you miss. And so having that developmental specialist is huge. I tell all of my families that withdrawal can last once, studies now say nine months, not all the time, so nobody panic, but mm. here and there, mm -hmm. you know, it, it almost is, is it colic? Is it a tummy ache? Is it teething? Or is it withdrawal that's coming out? Because it's very much irritability. I tell everyone, Go back to the way Hushabai was. Quiet, dark environment. Have a day just in the nursery or, you know, in your house. Just like you said, take them away from the sun. Mm -hmm. Maybe put them in the bathtub. Um, we teach families how to do a developmental bath where you have them completely swaddled and you do a spa day for babies. Sometimes that's just the trick. And, I mean, my kids weren't substance exposed, and I wish I would have known about a <laughs> developmental bath. Yeah. Because... Babies just can have a hard time. And when you put them in the bathtub and you feed them, who doesn't want to take a bath and be fed at the same time? I personally would. But sometimes that's what they need. And when you do that, they thrive. My hope is that Hushabai builds the relationships with families that 
in five years, I have contact with them to know that they went to kindergarten and a 30k classroom was not what it took. You know, is Homes, it is homeschooling? It homeschooling? Yeah. You know, is it homeschooling? Is it finding you know a classroom that is is 15 kids? Not saying that it's the developmental delay classroom, but just the not so hyper stimuli, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. truly what I think. I, I mean, my my son did better in a smaller environment. Mm -hmm. He just did. Yeah, I think most kids do. I think recognizing, like you said, what are common things that you can look for in your baby that show you they're still detoxing or they are detoxing. Because sometimes you just take a baby home that is detoxing and you don't even know that they are. They didn't check the meconium. They did not check the baby. They did not suspect mom was doing anything. And then you have these symptoms and you're kind of confused at what's really going on. I would love, and you are passionate about this too, the stigma around the baby. It really is hard because when you face that you're adopting a sick baby, you don't want people to know. I don't know why it is, but you are like, no, the baby's fine. The baby's perfect. Look at the baby. And it's like there's shame around it that you want, are trying maybe to, to protect the baby. And I don't know now that I've gone through it that I think you're actually protecting the baby because by not giving the child space to have an eye that wanders or, you know, these issues that could go along with the withdrawal, you kind of push them into what I call a normal life. Like they're normal, they're fine. And if I would have done that with Lily, she needs extra help. And when I explained to her her start, this is what happened to you. And this is what mom did. And this is the choices that she makes. And we love mom and she gave you life. But here's what happened. It was like a world opened up for her. This was not her fault. There was no shame around her. She was going to get extra help. I told you now she fights with people that she's more special needs. No one's going to come up and take that away from her. And she has the wandering eye. And patching did not work in this case. And you went to go get it fixed. Well, I didn't I get it fixed. That. Oh, I didn't okay. get it fixed. Okay. She, the doctor said with glasses, she actually needs glasses for just the wandering eye, not actually to okay. see. When she gets tired, it goes away. It goes, Whoa, and I'm like, <laughs> Lily, your eye, I know you're tired. You can't hide it. But you know, all these things make Lily very resilient. And I think that that's the biggest gift mm-hmm. that we're seeing with babies who have been through any exposure and have had to go through this period of detox. They're incredibly resilient children. And if you talk about their situation openly, maybe you still have the birth mom in your life, which you love to have Mm -hmm. adopting the whole story or healing the whole family, you said. Right. It's really important to just be honest. And, you know, other people can ask you questions about it because they don't understand But these children are still brilliant. They are still amazing. You still love them just as much as if it was a healthy baby. You've just gone through more things. And I actually think most parents who go through this are actually better people. Yeah. Because it pulled something out of you you didn't think you could do. Absolutely. And if you told me that I was going to go into this situation, which, uh, you know, you judge and you're like, well, I wouldn't be in that situation. But it's happening to the common person. It really is. Yeah. And you go into it and you really start to realize that you've got it in you to hold a shaking baby, that you've got it in you to stop everything and and give a bath, that you really do have the patience to love a child that needs you desperately. A complete transformation happens. And I see moms just become the most beautiful people. They're patient they're kind. <laughs> you do learn patience. They love people sure. differently. Yeah. The scale opens up, right? Maybe you yeah. just loved people in your church or small amount, you know, the group that you're in. But all of a sudden, you can go anywhere and love people because you've been in the midst of it. You've seen really hard things. Absolutely. And it has changed you. I want to encourage you that if you're about to go into this and you're like, I'm in, filled with dread, I'm afraid. I get that and I know that. But what has come out with Lily I can't, I'm never going to talk about her without crying (laughs) because she's such a prize to me and she has struggled so much and she's such a beautiful girl. And people say to me, she is the kindest, most intuitive person. She's a delight to be around. She's funny. She has a quirky way about her, but she accepts that she's a little quirky. 
And we accept that. And we're free to tell her story. She's free to tell her story just as though she's telling a perfect story, so to speak. Yeah. Right? Because that's yeah. just her story. Exactly. I think, you know, when you're talking about stigma, it is that. And until us as a community start talking about it and and making it that it's real, it's, I hate to say it, it's normal for now families to have people in their family that struggle with opiate use disorder or substance use disorder. We are just very, um, I would say, ashamed and us as a community are very quiet about saying, yes, my son struggles, my daughter struggles. I mean, we we lost a family member in 2021. She didn't wake up. Family still has not told us that it was opiates, but I know she was struggling with opiates. And she just didn't wake up. Young, young, young. And you hear that and you go, okay, I do this for a living. I am not judgy, I don't think, for the most part. But we still have not normalized it. And not that it's normal, but how is diabetes really any different type two, meaning that you don't exercise, you're overweight, you haven't made good choices with food, um, and now you take insulin and some people pass away from diabetic complications. Someone with opiate use disorder struggles Yes, they make bad choices. They have a brain disease, which is chronic illness. Um, some take methadone or Suboxone to make it that they don't make those bad choices. But that medication, babies are still going to withdraw from it. It is an opiate. Um, is mom healthy? She is healthy. She can be healthy. Now, if she's got other things in her system, okay, she's not healthy yet. But... Um, I think that stigma is huge. And I think, again, when you were talking about healing the family, what does that, that family system look like? And with your little one, how lucky is she? She, she? she has you all, and she has her birth mom, and she just has a bigger family. And I don't know. It, it can be really, really cool. I think so too. I would not have said that before. I would have been just terrified yeah. just of the whole thing. But then we got thrown into it. And now I I just feel like my kids also understand other people better. We were just at our friend's house and they, they adopted a little girl who she also struggled with withdrawal and she has impulse issues. And she's a sweet little girl, but man, she is a toughie like my Malia. And she will tell you. And she said to my, my sweet Vivi, you're ugly. You're ugly. And I was waiting. You know, you just don't know. And Vivi just looked at her like, oh, sweet. And I, and I said later, I'm like, did that bother you? And she, she kind of looked at me like she was shocked. And uh, she goes, well, she called me ugly three times. And then she tried to hit me. And I said, oh, did you have fun? She goes, oh, I sure did. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know what? We are very open and honest about everybody's situation. And we try to be really accepting and loving. And sometimes, like, she wasn't violently hurt. She, you know, I explained to them, she can't control it. So when she gets angry, she just says those things. You know, they're really working with her. And we need to love her, too. But I think because we're open with their corks, and things that they work on, yeah. that they're able to then do that for other children. And I'm not saying put your kids in a, in a situation where, you know, they're getting verbally abused or hit or any of those. I'm just saying that sometimes when you're honest with your children, they have a lot more grace for other children. It makes better humans. And they just are more loving. And, you know, I see Lily just trying to help other kids read and she doesn't even know how to read or you know she does but when she didn't she would help them and she just had a deep compassion that I think is really special that she developed through the process I want to tell you something I learned through this whole thing which I never knew this term and I always struggled with a pediatrician on explaining her background and sometimes the pediatricians even are like, oh, she's great. She's fine. And they really don't even take that into consideration. And that's very frustrating because you as a parent know that she's being affected and you need help in that area. Sometimes it's just because they have no experience in it. Right. But 
The term is NAS baby. Yeah. Explain that. Neonatal abstinence syndrome, or now they're calling it NOWS, neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. So if your baby is only exposed to opiates, which not very often, if you're getting something off the street, is it just opiates? Um, But that is a diagnosis that they're giving. So a baby that is diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome, meaning mom was ingesting, taking um, legal or illegal substances, goes through mama to the placenta, goes through the umbilical cord to baby. And so babies being exposed to that opiate, um, when the umbilical cord is clamped, baby starts to see or realize that not being exposed usually within the first 24 hours and you start seeing those tremors and a really high pitched cry, which is almost like a cat cry. I have a baby right now at Hushby. I haven't heard that for a long time, the, the pitch that he can hit, but now he's two days past and now he's much better. I'm like, oh, well, that's better, better cry. We're getting there. But, um, you know, and then you have that vomiting and diarrhea. And when you were saying, what do you expect? Like later on, what do you see? And a lot of times people will say, I have the worst diaper rash and I cannot mm. get rid of the diaper rash. And it's not from you being a bad parent. Um, it's probably those periods of withdrawal that maybe your, t- your baby's tummy just doesn't digest stuff great. So many times everybody's mm. changed formula and formula my and formula. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we were there too. Yeah. You know what the doctor told me for that is to soak tea bags, Lipton ice tea bags in cold water and put it on your baby and then put the diaper on and, and let it sit there for like 20 minutes. They actually will probably, you're like, is the baby going to let? It? Yes, because it's so soothing and relieving. Really? And we cured the diaper rash through that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh! Try it. Now I'm like going, oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Um, I mean that and like monostat, because sometimes it just gets so bad to eat. So you're you're using monostat, you know, cream on your baby and trying all these different things. And it's important to have a community of people who get it, Mm -hmm. really get it. And talk to your doctor. If they don't know what an NAS baby is or they don't have any experience, find another pediatrician because it really does make a difference. It really Does. does make a difference for even your school. I had my kids in school where they had never, ever even heard of that or seen a child like that, Yeah, you know, and they didn't understand some of the things that children need. Your child may always need a break. Yep. Your child may always need a dark room to go in. We would find Lily at three years old in the basement and she was fine, but she needed a break and she needed a dark place where she could think. She's still like that. Like Halloween never scares her because she just <laughs> darkness is fine for her. So things jump out and she's like unfazed, you know, so but she does need that. And I didn't realize that when she was six, seven, I'm like, come on. Cause we're such an go, go, yeah. go family. And she was getting so overstimulated that and I then was, they and then they make those bad choices or they're, or they're impulsive and crying it's crying like, and screaming. And, right, and yeah. It's like, okay, well we're putting them in an uncomfortable mm-hmm. place for them right now, not understanding that that's, that that's the case and that they'll do better if you put them in their type of environment, mm-hmm. not our type of right. environment. And so I wouldn't say that it's like abnormal, that it's, it's just different. It's just what they need. And I think everybody, you get to know your kids and you obviously know what your little one, how they thrive and how they don't and what's what's good and what doesn't work and you'll learn by trial and error you'll be like oh yeah that was not not good at all and you end up not doing you know whatever whatever you ended up doing um but i think it's i think one of the biggies is babies feed off their yes. parents your anxiety mm-hmm. and so I always tell families, I have two adoptive families at Hushabai right now, and I just keep teaching them how to deep breathe. And I'm like, I need you to take like the biggest yoga breath you possibly can. And, you know, a lot of times that was, that's within the first 30 minutes of getting there because everybody's anxious. You know, the, the families are like, did I make the right choice to come to Hushabai? And is this a good thing? Sometimes the hospitals are a little perturbed that the baby came to Hushabai. What are they going to do? And within 30 minutes of us de-escalating, not just baby, but family, <laughs> and if that's adoptive family or if that's birth, um, it's just the environment. We all do better with a little time out. 
if it's ang- if it's just a little crazy at the nursery, if I dim the lights, everybody starts to whisper. Mm. And everybody all of a sudden is like, oh, I'm going to go get some coffee. And I'm like, look at that. So babies respond and we all respond to that decreased stimuli when you're just like, I just need a timeout. And so are the babies, they're just different and everyone's different. I love the fact that, um, you know, you teaching your kids that, that it's just the way God made you. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is where you're at. And it's not that you did anything bad or, or that it's your choice. It's just, this is how you respond mm-hmm. a little bit better. I think it's patience. Patience. I think that if you're in a situation where you don't have any other friends that have children with special needs, you need to make some friends with other parents because that helps tremendously. And sometimes like we experienced this weekend, even though that little girl kind of said mean things, my girls wanted to help her. They want to help the ones that need help. And that's a beautiful thing. Lily's in these special needs classes, right? She's got an IEP. And they say all the time that she's helpful to those who are more special needs. Now, don't tell her they're more special needs. But, you know, (laughs) and and creating an environment where they are useful, where they feel that they've learned something and they can teach someone else has been huge for her because AJ is such a high, he's high achieving. He's very athletic. And so when she compares herself to him, she struggles. But when she has an environment of other friends that are also a little bit special needs, she then thrives because then they see areas they can help each other. And parents need that too. You need a community of people. That's why I could talk to you forever because you get it. You get what we've gone through. You know what it's like when people look at you like you're crazy and you're like, no, I really do feel like this is part of the withdrawal. And they're kind of like, no, every baby does that. I mean, I've had doctors say that to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear that all the time. And, and do we know, you don't know, but you know what the symptoms are and you know what you're experiencing. So make it better. If it's because of withdrawal, okay, make that better. If it's because the doctor says it's something else, I don't care as long as it works, make it, make them better. And so I think don't take no for an answer. If your gut is saying there's something wrong, Mm -hmm. I think moms and dads just have that gut of something's not right. And if you have that, just keep pushing. And, and I, when you're talking about children being more accepting, I do think that we all as parents have the opportunity to change the next generation of how our, our kids respond to those that are a little bit different. And that's a really good world to be in if, mm. if everybody is just instead of going, oh my gosh, look at that, look at that, look at that, and just going come on over. You know, we understand these are your quirks and whatever, but I have quirks too that are, Mm -hmm. you know, that are, and I would say I was normal, you know, but everybody, everyone has a journey and no one knows what that journey is unless we share it. And to share it means that we have to be in a safe place, safe place, and we have to trust and That's, you know, finding moms and dads that are experiencing the same thing that you're experiencing and talking about whatever you're experiencing, like not ashamed because it's it's just what you're going through. And you know what? In this show, God asked you to do it. And I say that a lot because I think sometimes when you're in the midst and you might see this at Hushabai is parents are like, oh my goodness, this is a lot. And other people around you are saying, you don't have to do this. This is an adoption. You can choose to not do it. Listen, if you're there and you're in it, that child needs you and Mm -hmm. you need that child. It is a partnership together. I would not be the person I am today if I didn't have Lily. And Lily is my my sidekick. She is my ride or die. She is (laughs) so intuitive. She puts me in my place. She's like, maybe that happened because you made that choice. And I'm like, (gasps) oh. And then it's like, she's just so good. And if I have... If I have this thing that I need to pray about, the thing with Lily is she she will come to you and be on your side and really care deeply about the things you care about. And I don't know what world I would live in without her. And so I needed her just as much. And I want to encourage you right now, if you're in the midst and you're like, I can't do it and everyone around me is saying give up, you can do it. And now we have these resources, yeah. like what you're doing, Tara, 
that help these families understand that they can do it and you will find the program and you will find the doctor and you will figure it out. I promise you, if you don't give up, the mystery will be solved. And I wish I could have told myself that when Lily was like one or two, because right now at nine years old, we have figured it out. And yes, there'll be new things coming up, you know, with all of our kids, (laughs) but that's what, what parenting is all about. This is just a little bit more of an intense mystery solving when you walk into a sick environment, a baby that's sick, a a parent, a mom that is, like you said, has a chronic sickness. Mm -hmm. That's a brain chemistry sickness. I mean, looking at it like that, even mental things, you know, looking at it as this is illness. This is not, it's not choices, right? It's, it's, it could have been at the beginning. Do you think, uh, I would say maybe 25% of my families, was it a choice? Mm -hmm. Many of my families started struggling they, you know, got a soccer injury. They went to the ER, um, had some some type of car accident. And we used to not tell people that opiates, because we didn't know it as a medical community. So just putting it out there. But we did not tell them that, did you know within three days your brain might change and you may, like, lose all your family and friends and everyone and have babies that you can't care for and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that. And now we're, you know, not sending kids home after they get their wisdom teeth taken out with a whole bunch of oxy. And so we did some of that. And so, yeah, was there choices? There were, there were some choices there, but not very often are my mom's ones that, oh, I just was partying and this happened. Um, there's usually something happened or there's trauma that led to mm. it where you go, okay, there, yes, there were choices, but was it their choice to be molested when they were little? No. Mm-hmm. You know, something led to that. And again, you know, where, what is your journey? What is, what is everyone's journey? Uh, I think it's just a different, different start. And families, you know, when you have that deer in the headlights look and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I always tell families, somebody, <laughs> even for babies that we're not exposed. Your life has changed forever. That's true. Having a That's child. absolutely true. <laughs> you know, I, you think that you are in control and you're not. And that's where we all struggle because you want to be in control. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure when people are saying it's an adoption and you can stop and whatever, um, a lot of it is we just, you've lost control. But even if this was your biological child, you have lost control. <laughs> Believe me, they have taken it from you. And just reach out. Um, you know, our website has videos and stuff, how to soothe your baby. But I think the biggest thing is talking to people. When I talked to moms this weekend, when I talked to a mom at one o'clock in the morning, I made her do the breathing and they were better. And I was like, so do we think we should go to the ER because I can't do anything from here? And she's like, no, I think I'm better now. And baby's quiet. And she just needed, she needed to de-escalate so yes. that baby could de-escalate. Yes. And I think that when you're talking about giving grace, um, I tell families always that if you fed them, if you've changed them and you've done your best, put them in their crib or on their bassinet, on their back, go outside, literally go outside, take your phone, set your timer for 10 minutes, get yourself together and then go back in. Your baby is going to be a different baby because you're going to be Mm de-escalated. And just knowing when you go back in, it's like, okay, let's try it again. Let's do what we were doing. You know, maybe then you're going to remember, oh, I should do the deep breathing. Oh yeah. I should put them in the bathtub. I didn't think about that. Oh yeah. Because when you're in the midst of it and you can't get a baby step to stop crying. That's awful. I mean, I've, I've had it at hush by one time since we opened, but a little man that, oh my gosh, he was second most impact baby I've ever taken care of in 30 years. And I looked outside and, uh, well looked out the door and I was like, give me a dose of morphine. And you guys, I, I can do that. Cause we're, we're in a medical facility, but I was like, give me a dose. And we gave it to him. It didn't even phase him and had been maybe 10 minutes, but the whole time I am holding a screaming child and I am a baby whisperer, but I could not get him to even not even phase him. I'm doing the deep breathing. And I looked out again and I'm like, give me another dose. And they're like, 
another dose. And I remember the nurse's eyebrow just went up like, you do realize if you give him too much, he's going to not breathe. And I'm like, that would be better right now than him screaming. And then I look back and I was like, okay, good eyebrow, because that makes me go, just give me half dose and let's give it. But what I had to do was put him down and we shut the door and made it just a little crack and he settled. Now, did I give him medication? I did. But he was, we, we were all worked up. Him, all of the caregivers, everybody was worked up. And when we laid him down, I think he was just like, oh my gosh, thank God. You guys, every, all <laughs> stimulation is gone. Because sometimes, you know, we hold them really, really tight. And sometimes they don't want to be held. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're talking about fentanyl, babies are withdrawing way differently on fent- with when they're exposed to fentanyl. Some scream, scream, scream. And then some... Chill. Just are totally mm-hmm. chill, but they have vomiting and diarrhea mm-hmm. and temperature and, and that stuff, but they're quiet. But then like they won't eat because they don't feel good. Cause think if you have the worst flu and migraine, nobody goes and eats a turkey dinner. Everybody, you just eat saltines and some ginger ale and you hope that you don't throw up. Um, babies that are exposed a lot of times just feeding them little bits here and there, which is a big difference than the neonatal intensive care unit to us. We just feed them like on demand. And the NICU, we're like every three hours they have to eat no matter what. If they wake up an hour early, we're not feeding them because it's too early. We're going to make them wait. And then they cry and you sit there and go, why? They were hungry. Um, But you do find that sometimes with these little ones, you put them on the changing table and this is not developmentally appropriate, but when you're trying to get them through, you put them on the changing table, they totally, they're quiet. And you're like, are you kidding me? I'm not holding you. Usually babies that are exposed want to be held and held tight. And then you give them the bottle and all of a sudden they eat the whole bottle and you're like, this is totally not okay. To get them through that acute process, you know what? We do whatever we can to survive. For the baby and for the parents. And I always tell moms and dads, I'm like, you do what you can do to get through. You're not a Bob mom or dad. You just, that's what you find. So I can tell people, try this, try this, try this. But was it you that told me cold water? Yes. Yes. And she's still like that. I put her in a bath. I accidentally put her in a bath. You know, you kind of feel it. You're like, and then the water was, so I didn't adjust anything. Well, it was cold water. I didn't know. And I kind of put her in and my hands went in the same as her hand, you know, it's the same as the baby went and she stopped, but it was freezing. And I'm like, should I pull her out? But she's not crying. I, I, and then we just started doing colder baths. It almost shook her out of whatever was going on in her brain that was so agitating. The cold water shook her out of that. We didn't keep her in for a long time, but it was enough to kind of startle her. And she's still like that. The doctor told me when she's really upset and anxious, grab the bottom of her feet and slap them together. And that stimulation uh, recharges the brain and sometimes it kind of knocks them out of it. It's kind of like the lady, um, I always say on Airplane, the movie, where they all line up, she's freaking out and they're all lined up to slap her to stop. It's kind of, and and of course we don't slap her, but just like that jarring response stops Mm -hmm. her and she's able to then calm down. So the cold water, she still jumps in a cold pool. Um, you know, the, just that slapping of the bottom of her feet will restart her. Whatever you can do to restart when you're in the midst of maybe your child really has trauma breakdowns. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like a tantrum that's above anything anybody's ever seen. You're like in the store, you're like, oh my gosh. And the thing about children like this a lot is it's not even about the thing. Like most of the time you could say, oh, it's because she wants a candy bar and I'm not giving it. It's really not even about that. And that's what makes it so out of control for you is because you can't even give her the sucker and be like, be quiet. Here's the sucker. It's not the thing. They're just so agitated in their bodies. They just want to scream and throw this fit. And there's nothing you can do to console them but get them out. And so if there's ways that you can restart, and that is just digging, 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 yeah. researching. All my listeners are researchers. That's yeah. why they're listening yeah. to Oh, this. totally. Totally. So the well, things- and, and I think that when you say that, like finding out that slapping the bottom of their feet, if you, if you're not quiet about what you're going through, meaning you're, you're sharing their story with the caregivers that can offer you the support. I've had, had families that, um, one, one baby, whenever dinner came around, lost it. 
completely lost it. And the occupational therapist said, you know, what does that look like? And they said, well, the six of us are at the table and, you know, we're talking about our day and the baby is there and it was two and lost it every time. And she said, pull the, the high chair back three feet. Still going to be engaged with dinner, but pull it back. Oh my gosh. She goes, amazing how smart they are. It just decreased the stimulation. When the baby wanted to interact, the baby was able to interact and they were able to sit there and go, hey, whatever. But it was too much all at once trying to focus on, I want to eat, but everybody's talking and it was just too much. And I was like, who would know that? Mm -hmm. No one would know that besides occupational therapists or physical therapists or other families that have been lived, Mm -hmm. lived through it. And you go, okay, so, I mean, I am sure families are going to go, I'm going to try the feet, I'm going to do this, we're going to see if it works. Or they're thinking, you put your baby in a cold bath? I know, I felt terrible. And there are a lot of things that you do that are not traditional. And you kind of feel bad at first until it works. And then you're like, you know what? I'm parenting in a non-traditional way. My whole story is non-traditional. The baby story is non-traditional. And so we're just doing this. And then you have stories, like you're saying, where people come together and say, well, I tried this. Okay, I'm going to try that. And without the community, if you just quiet yourself and don't say anything because you don't want people to know, that is such a detriment to you. I just don't want you to feel lonely in this journey. Mm -hmm. That's why we started the whole show. But we have to end. Yeah. But I just want to say the things that you're really passionate about that you and I talked about are being trauma-informed parents, having a a developmental plan, um, how to care for a baby that's withdrawing. And I love that you said that every baby deserves the best care possible to make the withdrawal better, just Mm -hmm. making it better. And that's what we are doing is what can we do to make it better for the child? You said that children who are left in hospitals who don't have anyone, let's say nobody, the parent cannot parent, um, has been removed, but the baby is not necessarily being adopted. Maybe the baby's going to foster care can stay in the hospital. Did you say 21 days? 21 days is national average, but my longest baby was four months. And I yeah. think 21 is is Minimum. a low number. Yeah. But um, with you, when eight days. Eight days. Yeah. That is the difference between yeah. the and, right and literally, I mean, the the moms that and dads that have trusted us that probably are listening to this show, they can tell you, you, you have a baby that's screaming and literally in 30 minutes they're catching flies. Out cold on mom and dad's chest, <laughs> mouth open, and sleeping finally. Um it's crazy. And I think that, I mean, I knew what, what we were creating would help, mm-hmm. but not to this extreme. To see a baby get the care that they deserve, if it were my baby, I would fight for it. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's what your little ones deserve. I'd love to see you traveling and putting these in every state. I'd love, I'd love for this to be available for families. And right now they can go to your website and you have a lot of resources there. What's your website? Uh, Hushbynursery.org. So H-U-S-H-A-B-Y-E-N-U-R-S-E-R-Y.org. Tara, thank you so much yeah, for coming on the you. show. And and congratulations to everyone that either has adopted or that's going to. And babies are fun. They're really, really fun. They're going to give you a roller coaster, but that's just the way they are. Yes. And they give so much love. That's the thing is that they're very loving. Absolutely. And when you capture their hearts and you've done all the work and they respond to you with love or peace, yeah. they calm down. It's just overwhelming joy. It really is. It is. Thank you for joining us, Tara. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media. Thanks for joining us on your adoption show. See you next episode.